Welcome to episode 45 of the Great Divide podcast, everyone. We are not going to have much fanfare on this one. In fact, as we promised on episode 44, we're just going to play the audiobook of A Certain Chemistry in its entirety. And we're going to do that right now. Enjoy. Big Country, A Certain Chemistry, the official portrait by John May. Read by fans, for fans. An impressionistic portrait of Big Country, the Anglo-Scottish group whose larger-than-life sound has reaffirmed the strength of guitar-based rock in the face of electronic gadgetry. Contains exclusive interview material, extracts from their manager's diary, and hitherto unpublished details of problems encountered by Big Country following the release of their Steel Town LP. Original book copyright 1985, Omnibus Press, and Grant Edwards Enterprises. Original text produced by John May and edited by Chris Charlesworth. Stuart. I think group names are always about six months after the fact. Somebody will have a great explanation of why the group is called this or that. At the time, I think it just implied a sense of vastness, open spaces, a sense of new discovery, a sense of ambition. Tony. The band means more to me than the name. The band is something I've been looking for all my musical career. I believe in the right combination, and this is the right combination. Bruce. Big country. It doesn't mean anything. You can't describe it, which is quite good. It's not as if it's something like Eddie and the Hot Rods. It's not a flash type name. I suppose it could be taken anyway. Mark. Big country's my life at the moment. My drums are my life and they work for big country. I know it's a completely amazing band and this band should definitely see it through to the final conclusion. Don Fernland and whose royal towers the king may still be observed in the ballad, drinking the blood-red wine. Robert Louis Stevenson, Random Memories. In the beginning, there was punk. Stuart. There was only about four or five of us in the whole area. We got right into it. Spiky haircuts, safety pins, and any chance we ever got to go and see any of the new groups. The first one we ever went to see was The Damned, supporting T-Rex at the Apollo in Glasgow. Then The Damned at Clouds. Then The White Riot tore with The Clash and The Buzzcocks and The Slits and Subway Sect and The Jam on it. That was great. Right, I thought. That's it. I'm starting a band. Immediately. By this time, Willie had come back from Amsterdam, but he'd got long hair. Willie, when we start a group, you'll need to cut your hair. So he cut his hair and we started writing songs. Just three chord thrashers. Great fun. We advertised in a local paper for a drummer. New wave band looking for drummer. No hippies. So a fucking brilliant drummer. A weed guy from Cowden Beef. A lorry driver. A complete nutcase. He turns up. He was a wee bit older than us. At that time, he'd be 22. This was old. 
He'd been backing up accordion players and organists in the local clubs, and he was really tight. So he sat down and we played him our stuff, and he played along, and he was really into it. So we said, right, you've got the job. But he had a mustache and sideburns, and it took us about six months to persuade him to get rid of the sideburns. He had the mustache for a long time. It transpired after about a couple of months that he thought we were called New Wave Band. He thought this was the name of the group. <laughs> uh, he didn't have a fucking clue what was going on. I think at this stage, there's at most about eight of us that were punks. We used to go about getting chased at dance halls right, left, and center. People hated it up here. You're always going to get a kicking. Really, up here, it was a John Peel and music press-inspired thing. It really didn't spread by word of mouth or by watching groups. And so it was as a Rosillo's gig in Dunfermline. Richard Jobson came along and I met him. I was talking to him about the group. He says, I'm a great singer. I sound just like Lou Reed. I always remember that he said that. And I went, all right then, we'll have a go. And that was that. Rick knew a guy who'd been sort of involved in putting groups on. He was an old biker guy, Hell's Angels type. Satan slaves that they call round about here. They're good lads, you know. I've never been into that side of bikes myself, but the lads themselves, they're all right. They like to play up their outlaw biker stands sometimes. So begins the history of the skids. That is another story. This was the time of the valves, the scars, Johnny and the self-abusers. There were support gigs with the stranglers and the buzzcocks. There were fanzines like Glasgow's Ripped and Torn. A record store owner called Sandy Muir puts up money for a demo single. John Peel plays it to death. Jean-Jacques Brunel helps set up club gigs. Peel recommends them to Virgin, and they signed up as fast as they could. Looking back on the skids, it was a great laugh. There was never any one time when we were 100% serious about it. I didn't think you can be. There was some fucking laugh, I must admit. I think we made some great music. We used to do some bloody chaotic gigs. It was a good laugh, though. I'm sure I've never, ever been part of a real group. With Big Country, I was trying to recapture the feeling I had for music in the early days with the skids. Just a feeling of everybody pulling for the same thing, and genuinely committed, and genuinely feel passionate about what you do. I wanted that excitement, that sense of wonder, a song that is bigger than four individuals. With the first Big Country, it certainly was bigger. But it was all over the place. Everybody played 19 to the dozen. There was no solid basis for anything. Everybody was playing everything at once. You'd have lead lines on the bass, two guitars, keyboards, and drums going at the same time. We stuck with it for some time because it was actually quite exciting to play in it. Then I saw there'd be a tight basis for the group in a much more simplistic sort of thing. And if anything, because of the simplicity, more melodic but tougher at the same time. How did you come across all the, the members in the band? How did you find them all? Well, as Peter was saying, I'd known them all because they all stayed fairly local, apart from Clyde, the drummer, who comes from London. And uh, he'll batter me for that, actually. He comes from Camberley. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the most natural thing was uh, was to go and ask them because I'd, I'd always enjoyed the, the bands they'd been in in the past. As you're going on tour, of course, with... Alice Cooper, yeah, right. which is guaranteed, I think, to play to very large audiences. Did it's not a question. You're you're quite used to large audiences, Stuart. But what about Peter? How do you fancy the prospect of standing up in front well, of several thousand people? One hopes. I'll be happy if he sneaks away from me. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Bruce. Oh, well, my best pal is Raymond. We've been together ever since we were that high. It's school. His big sister Sandra is married to Stuart, so it's like for ages and ages type thing. I used to ask him things like, what was it like doing Top of the Pops, and what happens on tour and all the rest of it. Usually the drugs and women type of thing, and I'm going, oh, it sounds like fun. When's the first time you ever remember clapping your eyes on Stuart? At that time, there was about seven bands in Dunfermline. I was in one of them. Everybody that was in a band was usually in the dockyard. So at dinner time, all the folks and bands would congregate at one big table and slag each other off. Oh Christ, there were tons and tons of bands. The hibernating bears. You know, bands like that. They could change their names every week. I found out if I left my work before five years, I could get my pension money back. So I said, I'm going to blow it. Just leave the dockyard, collect my grand, and just blow my money. So I left two weeks later, got a check for a grand, and got myself a new guitar, a new amplifier, and a WePA system. I got together with a few locals in the town, and I was on the dole for about nine or ten months just messing about in bands. Then Stuart left the skids and came to see me. We decided it was just going to be the two of us, just writing songs, just to see what would happen. So we spent about six weeks in a wee room at the community center with a wee porta studio and a drum machine. We just sat there programming the drums, playing the guitars. The songs were really basic, but once Stuart put the lyrics on, they sounded really good. We tried to flog the tapes to the record companies, but they were not interested because it was loud guitars. At that time, it was the synthesizer boom, video stuff, so nobody would take a risk with us. So we said, all right, we'll get a band together. We played our first gig in the Glen, Dunfermline. We were really quite a good band, but the thing was the two brothers. Being brothers, they argued a lot. We wanted to keep the keyboard player, but he said if my brother's getting the sack, I'm leaving. They were really great, excellent musicians. It's just that the stuff that me and Stuart were writing, they just didn't work it right. Anyway, we did a couple of local gigs at the time, then we got a chance to support Alice Cooper. The tour lasted two days, and we got kicked off. It was terrible, thrown in at the deep end. There was me, just playing in local bands all my life. Then I get told my first gig is going to be at Brighton Conference Center with Alice Cooper. I was nearly shitting myself. So then we goes down there and the things that we see are really ridiculous. All the roadies moaning that their cocaine had arrived. That sort of ticked me off a wee bit. We never went down at all. We were really terrible. Alice Cooper's management said, It's just not working out, boys. We just got kicked off. But I heard that the band they were going to get as support before us was Depeche Mode. So you can imagine what that would have been like. I was definitely disillusioned with it all. I thought it was terrible. I didn't think it would be like this. So me and Stuart just sat and talked about it again as to whether we should give it a miss and try something else. Then after that, we heard that Tony and Mark were interested in working with us. It was through Ian Grant that we all got together. He made the right phone calls. We first played together at Phonogram's offices down in the basement. I'd never met Tony and Mark before in my life, and Stuart had just met them a few times. We all got on great. 
I thought Mark was a bit eccentric at first. He still is. Mark and Tony were session men, and me and Stuart, complete thrashy guitarists. So we said, this is the song, and we played them the guitar parts. So Mark got on his drum kit, and Tony got on his bass, and they just started playing along. I couldn't believe it. How the fuck can you do that, man? It was really good. It was really amazing. They sounded like masters. Tony. A friend of mine just asked me to go around a certain family Townsend household. They said they were putting together a little group of kids my age, and they'd thought I'd fit in. So I went across there, and Betty Townsend answered the door, but she wouldn't let me in. She thought I was the local drug pusher. When that was cleared up, I was invited in and introduced to a few of the guys there, some of whom I'd seen knocking about the streets of Ealing and didn't like. Sort of dubious people. For the first time, I found people who were doing more or less the sort of thing that I was and wanted to push it a little further than normal in a different way. When we started rehearsing a bit, I was completely struck on the idea of being in a group. That was with Pete's younger brother, another bombshell that I appreciated later. When I first went round there, I had no idea who the who were. The first time I met Pete, he just looked like a shoddy version of Paul and Simon, who were my best mates. Nobody ever likes bigger brothers. Then he sat down and started playing guitar. After a while, it dawned on me that this guy is not big. He's enormous. It was a bit difficult to think, how big can big be? Just as I got involved, the band was called Sounds of Green Lightning. From there, it went on to Clear Peace, and it stayed that for quite a while as we built up quite a following in the Ealing area. Being in a group and being in the spotlight in the area, the girlfriend rate went up considerably. It started getting really attractive. My brother was singing with us. The music started getting more and more complicated because we were pushing ourselves, continually rehearsing three or four times a week. We never played the same set twice. My brother left. We went up to Pete's house in Goring where he'd just had a studio built in a barn. It was the first quadraphonic studio in Britain, and we were going to be the first group to record in quad. I remember we stayed up there for five days, eat, slept, and recorded in the studio, and had a hell of a time. We thought everybody's going to run to listen to our tapes because it's in quad, but none had quad systems to listen to them on. It was serious then, getting in touch with record companies, going to see A&R people, hanging around Soho. Then the realities of the music business began to become apparent. Getting to see people. The worst thing that we had was the Townsend connection. Everybody was wary about signing Pete Townsend's younger brother, even as much as we hid him in the group, putting forward a whole group facade. It used to scare everybody off. Simon was so talented and he was getting a lot of support from his parents. His father Cliff was a very well-known and respected sax player in the business. He used those contacts to see if he could edge Simon's career along. Eventually, Warner Brothers decided they wanted him solo, so we all pissed off. Unfortunately, his solo career came to an abrupt end when the guy who was looking after him suddenly died. At this time, I was starting to get some real road experience with my cousin playing in a calypso dance band, playing soul and reggae stuff, doing dinners and dances. It was a real cowboy outfit with eight or nine of us. I was the youngest of the lot. It was just a laugh for them and real experience for me. After about a year or so, Warners wanted Simon to do a single with a band, so he phoned me up. We got most of the old band together and did a single. That died, 
so we decided to skip this Jimmy Osmond-type approach that Warner Brothers were trying on Simon and become a real band again. Warner Brothers let go of Simon because of that. We decided to do it properly, started doing demos again, paying for them ourselves, rehearsing at Shepperton Studio, and I started acting as manager. But still, record companies didn't want to know the Simon Townsend band. What we realized was we were playing the wrong type of music. Punk was happening somewhere else and attracting the punters we were hoping to go for. Then we realized the music we were playing was a bit too complicated and not new enough for what the British public wanted. So we chopped ourselves down to a three-piece and called ourselves on the air. What do I remember of my first meeting with Mark? A complete and utter pain in the arse. At that time, I was running Pete Townsend's synthesizer hire company, so I had access to the phones. We had advertised in the Melody Maker for a drummer. Mark rang up and said, Don't forget me. He rings back ten minutes later. He sort of hassled me for half the day. Come the night of the audition, I told Simon and the rest of the boys, Watch out for this one because he's a right creep, and he just won't leave me alone. Mark had managed to get a tape of our stuff from somewhere, and he was listening to what the other people were doing and practicing on his steering wheel. So by the time he actually came on, he was beat perfect, as if he knew the songs backwards, which he did. We were just taken in with his front. Apart from being technically a magic drummer for that age, he took us all by storm and we felt complete when he joined us. He's a sort of strange character to get to know and get involved with because he came from a different musical background but he was totally into the type of music we were doing, which was really complicated. It meant playing fiddly bits, which he loved. But with On The Air, we completely changed our music and started doing stuff which blew us away. It was aggressive, hard, and loud. It demanded a lot more vocally from myself and Simon, and Mark had to tone down, simplify himself, become worse in a way. I think up until that point, Simon and I had made about six albums of music since we started, and none of it ever got down onto plastic, which is strange. However, with On The Air, we actually got some results. WEA decided to sign us up. Again, that was a weird situation. Dave D. was then A&R there, and he was the man we were waiting for, sitting around Simon's front room one evening with our manager named Vital Schlamp. Simon was pacing about waiting for the phone to ring. The phone rang, and Dave D.'s secretary says he'll phone you in five minutes. And the phone rang, sure enough, five minutes later. Dave D. had resigned from WEA Records. This is after nine years of waiting for our first record deal to come through. Subsequently, the guy who took over from Dave D. quite liked what we were doing and decided to sign us up just on a two-singles deal. We did our first single using a guy called John Burns. He'd produced a couple of Genesis albums and other stuff that we all liked. But I just remember coming out of the studio thinking, I don't really like this. It just wasn't right. It was muffled. Anyway, they pressed it, put it out, nothing happened. For our second single, we employed the services of John Astley and Phil Chapman. The single was called Another Planet, and we had strong hopes about that, but unfortunately it turned out very jamish, and it just got blasted as another jam ripoff band. But that didn't deter us very much, and the record company decided to see what we were like on the road. So they put us up with the skids. It was history from then on. Mark. I saw an advert in Melody Maker which said, Drummer Required. Something like Bill Bruford, Phil Collins. Two drummers I respect who can really play. I went for the audition and spoke to Tony on the phone, and so the story goes. We fell out with each other immediately. 
It was for the Simon Townsend Band. I must admit I'd never heard of them, and I didn't know he was the brother of Pete. But the strange coincidence was some friends of mine lent me a cassette with some Simon Townsend stuff live. And there were two tracks on it which were really quite complicated Genesis-style music. Tony said you could come down to Shepperton Studios, but you won't get an audition. So I said I'll come down anyway. Of course, they made me stay till last, which gave me an opportunity to listen at the door. I already knew two songs, so I went in, asked for them, and played it stick for stick, which completely flabbergasted them. It was a little bit of a cheat, really. I have told them since how I did it. It was really to change Tony's attitude. I was going to write a letter of complaint to Melody Maker, saying if you've got adverts in, asking for musicians, they should have the right to audition. So I got the job immediately with the band and got on famously with Tony, and we found we actually worked really well together. It was a sad departure for me leaving my brother Steve, who'd been with me up until this time as my second half. We were always known as the Flying Brzezecki Brothers. On the Air was an amazing band, not too dissimilar from Big Country. I'm sure we've gone on to do what On the Air could have done in lots of ways. It started off as very confident, slightly technical power rock. Then Simon got into The Clash, and we got much more aggressive, and got slagged off for sounding like The Jam, which was ironic, given Weller's influence from the Townsend side of things. Strange, vicious circle. We only ever did one tour, and we supported the skids. I remember thinking what a diabolical band they were and how good we were and wanted to blow them off the stage every night, thinking everybody must think we're brilliant and they're awful. I was definitely so confident about it because we were a great band, but just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Totally. Absolutely. It's a real shame. I still feel annoyed in a way that we didn't do more with it. But I always remember really liking Stuart Adamson's guitar playing and actually thinking he was the only decent one in the band. Tony. My most embarrassing moment on that tour was at Leicester University. We'd never been in Leicester before, never been in a university that big before, and here we are supporting a band that none of us, again, much to my embarrassment, had hardly heard of. As far as I was concerned, the skids were Yankee Dollar and a funny bloke who wears cricket trousers and cricket jumpers and had a funny haircut. I walked up to the stage and this guy was changing the bass strings. I thought he was the bass roadie. Turned out to be Russell Webb, the bass player. I was very embarrassed about that. I watched him that night and it kind of changed my life, really. I'd never seen a band who sounded so good, so big, sort of tearing audience apart mentally and emotionally. The whole bit. It ripped me apart. I just stood at the back of the hall. I'd just never seen anything like that, just four guys up there beating and hitting normal instruments, but creating such a big glorious sound that it raised people's hearts to the roof. In a way, a kind of hero worship for the group started then. I thought, fuck me, where do people get the imagination to write like this and to sound like that? I just thought Jobson's voice was how it should have been. Later I went off it. I remember looking at Stuart and thinking he's the kind of guitar player who I don't think anybody else knows about. The main thing wasn't how good he was, but how different he was unique in the way he sounded and the way he played. I became a fan basically and the rest of the tour was a nightmare from my personal point of view with my group, but a complete and utter joy because I watched the skids every night. On the Air broke up after that tour and Tony and Mark formed a reputation as session musicians under the name Rhythm for Hire. They did sessions for a Pete Townsend solo album. Tony says of this, 
There we were, working in a situation with the hierarchy of rock and roll, and we were the new boys. Going back, it wasn't until about halfway through the skids tour that I, for the first time, sat down with Stuart. I think it was over breakfast one morning. I think it was in Glasgow, even. Told him how much I admired his playing. I actually asked him if he was up for doing sessions, and he said no. When I heard the skids had split up, I was on the phone immediately and said, if you ever need a bass player and a drummer, there's a good team in London. He said, fine. Then I subsequently called him up, and he said he had something organized in Scotland. Then, by coincidence, I bumped into Ian Grant, now the band's manager, at Brockwell Park. We were playing with Pete at the Right to Work Festival, and Ian was there with the members. I remember talking to him about things we'd like to do. When I found out later that Ian Grant was also involved with Stewart, it seemed like a bit of an omen. I had no idea they were linked. We went down to the Polygram Studios. Mark came in with a kind of straight and narrow session point of view. I was explaining to him that this is a prospect, and I don't think he could quite see it. We met up with Stuart again, and then there was Bruce. He was like the dark horse. I always remember him looking like a football thug. It was somebody who I hadn't come across before. In Indian guru terms, it was a meeting of east and west, except it was north and south. We met originally at the Slavia Hotel in Notting Hill Gate, where they were staying, the night before we were to go into the studio. We thought it best to get together, get to know each other. Stuart disappeared to phone his wife, left us with Bruce, and we didn't know what to say to him. We sat there with Bruce trying to figure him out, and I couldn't. I could hardly talk to him because I couldn't understand a word he said. Stuart's accent was bad, but Bruce's was even worse. We found out that he'd stayed in Brixton a bit and dossed down here and there. We eventually all had a drink up in their room and we started letting go with the tour stories. There was a great night, I remember, where we stitched up our roadie's room. I realized how much of a practical joker Stuart was because he was like directing everybody. Anyway, as we got drunk, we started getting on with each other even better. We went to the studio the next day and, after we got the backing tracks done, we realized this wasn't just a session, this was something that looked like it could be important. In Stuart's eyes, he could see it. I felt it. And I wasn't sure what Bruce's attitude was. He could hardly play guitar. He was doing everything that Stuart was showing him, but interpreting it in a different way, which I found quite enlightening. Mark still wasn't convinced. He was convinced the material was good, and we sounded good together, but he wasn't convinced it was something we should go ahead and do professionally, i.e. stop doing sessions, earning good money, and starting again in a group. It took a bit of time to talk him around to it. Phonogram more or less signed the group there and then. Chris Biggs, then A&R, came down, saw, listened. We went out on the road more or less straight away. We did two weeks rehearsals and went out. The first gig we did was either the Wellington and Shepherd's Bush or the 101 Club in Clapham, and we slowly started to find our feet. You could see it was happening. One tour turned into two tours, which turned into three tours, going up and down the country and getting full houses wherever we were going. It was great to see the whole thing mushroom. I don't think single success changed us. It just made us more determined to do what we were doing even better. The rise of the group was so quick from a gigging point of view that to have a hit record was just a logical progression in a way. We knew we were good enough to be in that position. It took us by surprise when it happened, but we were determined not to let it change our attitudes. We had such a great wholesome attitudes when we started, and it's a shame to stop it just because we've got a few hit singles. We were wearing the check shirts and those weird trousers to start off with, and we just realized we don't need that kind of thing. Our aim was to be a good group in a world where groups weren't particularly good. Make good music, but cut out a lot of the crap. I think we all wanted to be folk heroes without having halos over our heads. We hated the arrogant ways of pop musicians, and we felt really big because we were going to break all that down, and next minute we're part of it. So what we had to do was not knock it, but to try and make the system play our game rather than their game. Do you think you've succeeded? No, not at all. I mean, we haven't changed anything. We've tried through interviews and appearances to put down the star system, but it won't change. People will always want stars. 
But there are just proper ways of doing things, old bean. I don't think we feel like we've prostituted ourselves anyway. Life Stories You've always got to keep a sense of humour. I think a lot of times we've been seen very stern and poor-faced about our work. I am very serious about things I write about, and I am very serious about the music. But you've got to keep a smile on the other side of your face as well. William Stewart Adamson, born April 11th, 1958. My father started off as an engineer in deep-sea trawlers. We were living in Crossgates then, in a one-bedroom miner's house in a row. He was away from home a lot. The earliest recollections I have of him is coming back from sea, and he used to bring pennants from all the places he'd been, and I had a whole wall of them in my room. All the family was really close-knit between grandparents, aunts, and uncles. We were staying at my auntie's in Cowdenbeath one time, when I remember my dad coming home with a shark in a polyethylene bag. He flung this thing in the bath and it was stinking. Really it was mainly my mum and her mother that I had the most contact with at that time because my dad was away working so much. There really was near the scope to earn a decent amount of money locally so I think that's why he went to sea. There was a living wage there but nothing startling. He served his time in the pits in Glen Craig. It was great being brought up in a small village. There was a whole circle of us that used to mess around together, all around the same age. Guys with great nicknames. There was no children's TV or toys to play with. We used to invent our own games, playing Japs and Commandos, Cavalry, football. My dad actually left the Navy for a while and ran a shop in a place called Lemfinnens in Fife. And my parents met a load of people there who were in a club band playing dance music. And they used to come back to the house quite often. That was great because you used to get to sit up late at night and there'd be guitars and accordions lying around. Plus, my mom had worked in a record shop before she was married, so she was always interested in music. There were early Stones LPs lying about, kinks and stuff. Not only that, but a lot of bluegrass, Scottish and Irish folk songs, a whole complete range. There wasn't any great musical tendencies within the family itself, but there was an interest in it there. From the age of 11 or 12, the thing that took up most of my ambition was to be in a group, a successful group. I think the idea of building up your own self-confidence appealed, because I was pretty shy when I was young. In fact, I still am at times. I'm terrible at small talk. I suppose that was a way of getting round it, just to be that bloke up there on stage with a guitar. I was at school at the time we started the first group up called Tattoo. We used to play roundabout up north. I started it with Willie Simpson, who ended up being in the skids as bass player. He was at school with me. We used to run a disco at Crossgates Institute on Friday night and charge 25p a time and we used to keep all the money for buying gear for the group. I was 15, Willie was 16, and the other two guys, John and Ian, were 17 or 18. They could go to the pub. We ended up at that age having the best gear of any club band around about the area, which was a really big advantage. We used to rehearse four nights a week. We'd just go through the songs time and time again until we had them off pat, and we still weren't that good. I used to sing and play rhythm guitar, and John used to play lead guitar, and Ian played the drums. The great thing about Ian and Willie 
was they'd never played before they joined the group. We had another bass player for a while, but he was too much into playing stuff we hated, like tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. He said that's where the money is. Nay chance. We wanted to be like the Stones, Rory Gallagher, guitar-oriented music, so he got the chop. So I said to Willie, look, I've got an old bass lying about the house, and I sold him this bass for four pounds, and it took him two months to pay it off. That's really what it was like. And I gave him a list of what all the notes were on the guitar neck, and gave him it. Two weeks later, he came back and says, right, I've got it. All we used to do was variance on 12-bar stuff. If we played a song that had five chords in it, you were lucky. It was good fun. We used to play gigs in all the local pubs and dance halls. If we got 60 pounds for a gig, we were talking really big money. That was the business. Usually it was between 25 pounds and 36 pounds. In fact, there was one night at a dance hall called the Two Red Shoes where we played for three and a half hours for 32 pounds. The first weekend it ever happened, we'd been right round various agents trying to get gigs away outside the Fife area. And he got us this gig in Brecon that was a storming gig. The place was packed and everything went right. Then the agent guy phoned up the hotel just as we were packing the gear and says, I've got two nights for you in Strathpeffer, which is about a hundred miles further north than Brecon and it's November. He said you'll get 60 pounds a night and your digs thrown in on the Saturday night. That'll do us. So at the place we were playing, we said, can you fix us up with a room for the night? He said, no, I'm sorry, we haven't got any rooms upstairs at all, but you can leave your gear here if you like and sleep in the van. We used to just go away in the same gear that we went on stage with. So here's us all in this sweat-drenched gear. We didn't have sleeping bags. We were wrapped up in the covers for our equipment, sleeping in this van. It was like half an hour sleep and then three quarters of an hour awake, crying with the cold, shivering and all. When we woke up at five o'clock in the morning, the van was about quarter of an inch thick in frost. We were freezing and starving, so we went to people's doors and stole their milk and newspapers and asked the people in the hotel for an extra fiver for petrol. Then we went up to Strathpeffer. Saturday night was great. The hall was famous for being a place where the Beatles played on their first Scottish tour as a backup group for some singer or other. It's a big hall, holds about 1,500 people, and they had these real grotty old rooms upstairs with dodgy flea-infested beds. They said this is the group's accommodation. So we got all the beds in one room. We thought 60 pounds, this is great. They used to keep the bar open for the locals after hours, so we go down there, buy a huge crate, we're all pissed up, 16 years old. Good example to people we were. We had a big fight in those rooms upstairs, and Willie fell on a pint tumbler and gashed his arm right to the bone. So he had to go away to the hospital. This is three o'clock in the morning. Next minute I think, oh no, Willie's not going to be able to play. It didn't matter. There'd been about 800 people in the hall the night before, but we never knew this. You get the same money for a Sunday night, but it's just like a dodge for the promoter, and there's only about six people in the cavern of a place, and no one's interested in what we're playing. We just sort of took breaks during the songs and went to the bar. Good memories, great memories. I was 17 and at college when the group split up. John, the guitarist, 
had been made redundant from the dockyard, so he took a job as a policeman in Edinburgh, and he didn't have time for the group anymore. Then we forgot to put antifreeze in the van during the winter, cracked the cylinder block, so that was knackered. So we just divvied all the gear up and split the money. Then me and Willie and another one of our mates, Graham, had a great idea. We were pissed off working in Fife and decided we'd go away abroad and get work. Because Willie's girlfriend had went away to Amsterdam, we said, right, we'll go there. So we went away there with the great idea of starting a new life. Of course, we were stunned a bit the first day we were there, coming from Dunfermline. We actually had stayed in Zedek, which is at the edge of the red light district. This was fucking hell, head-nutting stuff, completely stunned by it, and we couldn't get a fucking job. So after a few weeks, I said, sod this. So this is when the punk rock thing was starting, and I said, I'm going home to start up a group again. So I came away back and got right into being a punk rocker, collecting Damned and Sex Pistols records. Detail has always mattered to me. Mark Michael Brzezicki, born June 21st, 1957. I don't know anything about my Polish ancestry. My dad's big point is that I'm British and I've got absolutely nothing to do with Poland at all. My dad's a naturalized British citizen and my mom's English, so I'm British. My dad's always been in engineering as an aircraft fitter. He was at RAF Northholt in the war in a Polish squadron that was servicing the hurricanes. And I had a real big interest because of him. Because when I was born, he was working for BOAC, now British Airways. Airplanes have always been my dear love. I think I've got a lot off my dad. He's also one of those rare trained singers, which is supposed to be a dying art. He does a lot of studying. He's got lots and lots of books, and he does three hours a day. If you rang him up now, he'd be practicing in his bedroom. He doesn't actually do anything, because there's no outlets for him, because he refuses to sing in a choir where the untrained voice is singing against his. He should actually turn into a teacher. I just admire his complete enthusiasm for music. My dad will definitely go down as an unknown genius. He's definitely an unusual person, and he's very talented in nearly everything he does. I can't really boost him more than that. He's always inventing things, and they're normally always very good ideas. Normally amazing ideas that he's normally laughed at, and then they come out 20 years later. I could quote you Swing Wing. He's got a model of that idea he did in the RAF. Lots of safety things in aircraft. It was just going through the channels. That's always been his big letdown, the connections that make it all work. Close family, five children. Two brothers and two sisters I have. I'm the middle one. We've always had a piano in the house because my mom plays a bit and she used to play the violin as well. When I was 16, my brother Steve, two years younger than me, bought a bass guitar. My older brother Tony bought a lead guitar and I bought myself a drum kit with my paper round money. I was totally in love with jazz fusion and drumming that was considered the impossible. The first thing I ever did was with my brothers in a band we called New York City Public Library, which never went outside the house. I played in the living room with cloths over this ridiculous drum kit, which consisted of two drums that sounded dreadful, but sounded better with a cloth over them. At school, I detested English. 
English language never actually made any sense to me. I tend to be logical to the point of not understanding a simple thing, and there's so many rules, logic doesn't come into it. I was great at woodwork, technical drawing, art. I passed all my exams. I was quite studious, and I wanted to go to art college. I've always adored aircraft from my aircraft spotting days, cycling to Heathrow Airport from where I lived in Slough, a 20-minute ride. I was always the one, when I was young, with aircraft hanging from the ceiling. I've still got drawers full at home in the loft. I'm sometimes a bit of a hoarder. Anyway, I went into aircraft engineering, which is what my father did, and worked for a subcontract firm at Weybridge working for British Aerospace. I did that for six years, a full apprenticeship, which gave me a skill when I came out at 21, nearly 22. To do an aircraft apprenticeship, you've got to cover everything. Electronics, hydraulics, mechanical. Your first year is basic engineering, where you learn how to hold a file, and then you learn how to weld. You have to know everything. It gives you a good aptitude for everything. My drum kit's always well-serviced. When I decorate, I don't take shortcuts. I do it the right way. It's a grounding for lots of things. The way I work on my car, holding the spanner right so you don't cut yourself. Silly things like that. I definitely got that side from my father. The first professional band I was in was called Silverstream, a pub working band which should have become famous, and they never did. I was working with a blind guy called John Land who was completely stunning. He sang like Stevie Wonder, although I thought he sounded better and he played flute as well. He had an incredible ear for chords. He could tell a mistake like that. He's definitely my musical conscience. He still does pub gigs, and I still do the odd gig with him. That keeps me in trim, because he knows if I'm being sloppy or hitting too hard. A lot of control to be learned from that. Definitely a great apprenticeship to do. All the time I was working, I was playing for about three or four bands a week in the Slough area. Then I did a session for a friend of mine, and we went to Hallmark Studios in Hampstead to work alongside Steve Hall, the producer. That's where I got my main grounding in the studio. My first paid session was at 16. In my time there, I worked with Kokomo, Dave Clark of the Dave Clark Five with him playing keyboards, Mike Hug from Manford Man, also a drummer who wrote the Ski Yogurt advert on TV. I worked with Daryl Way of Curved Air and hundreds and hundreds of unknown songwriters that were hoping to do well with their demos. I did the drumming for about five years worth of music accompanying language and business studies courses. At one point, I was doing three sessions a day, sometimes learning 20 songs a day. It actually did get boring in the end. A lot of people don't find the group they really like to be in. I did. Anthony Peter Butler, born February 13th, 1957. All I know about my grandfather is that he was born in Edinburgh and emigrated to the West Indies, where he married my grandmother and subsequently had 10 kids. He worked in a brewery and died of drink, which is quite ironic. My father came over to this country in 1957, just when I was born, from Dominica and became a welder. He died a few years later, so I really don't know much about him. I suppose my musical talents come from him. I remember he gave me a trumpet. He died when I was six. It was all such a long time ago. It's not a very valid point to my life. I do remember he had this wonderful silver gleaming trumpet, and I used to try and blow it now and again. I can't remember how he played. 
I can't remember ever hearing him play. My brother stayed in the West Indies. They had Lennox and then came over to England and had me. He didn't come over until he was 10. He grew up with my grandmother in the West Indies and we never met until he was 10. We didn't even know each other existed. We were just maybe too young to be told about these things because we wouldn't have understood it. It was quite a shock when we set eyes upon each other for the first time. I was born here. This is what I know. I don't feel the need to go playing stones on the street by the riverside or go climbing coconut trees. I'm used to playing on the concrete and grazing my knee playing football. When I look back, I just remember having things quite easy. I've always done things the way I wanted to do things, right or wrong. I've never been hassled by anybody. Nobody's ever tried to tell me what to do. I can't remember having much musical inclination as a child. It wasn't until I started secondary school when I fortunately had one of those go-ahead young music teachers who tried to get everybody in school to play an instrument. We were asked what instrument we'd like to play. It was just that I'd seen Top of the Pops the night before, and Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky was on, and there was a close-up shot of a Fender bass, so I thought, that looks quite nice. So the school tried to get me one, but couldn't afford it. So I began playing percussion. My cousin eventually bought me one. He was in the army and a bit of a singer himself. He used to have a little army club band and a mate of his used to make guitars in his spare time out of cardboard and papier-mâché. So he brought me over this guitar from Germany. Horrible to look at, but it was functional. The neck was the only solid piece of wood on it. The pickup was just a magnet with wires coming out of it and the bridge was made of matchsticks. I had my first guitar in front of the mirror type thing. I was playing the records in my little room and my music taste changed towards things like early Genesis and Hendrix, my all-time favorite. I'd get my guitar, turn it upside down so it looked like a left-handed guitar and freak out in my little room. Then as I started to get more technically proficient, fingers were getting pretty nimble, I started taking it more seriously at school. I got more involved in the theory side, played in the school orchestra, learned to read music. I had visions of going respectable and going to music college. I was taking more interest in the choir and learning to sing properly. I just wanted to experience the whole thing of music, but in a proper way. That was to be my education, my vocation, rather than just a good hobby. The whole racial aspect of my life has been, quite honestly, nil. I never had any problems when I was a kid at school. Anybody who looked like they were going to give me any problems because of my color always backed off. I've never had a fight because of my color. I've never hit anyone because of racialist remarks. I never expected to get any trouble within the music community. The only time I was ever faced with that problem were two incidents in America. I was doing a phone interview from London and I was asked whether I was employed in the group because I'm a token black. I just put the phone down. The second time was when Mark unfortunately had an altercation with the law in New Orleans. I realized if I'd been arrested, I might not be around now. I just keep quiet when I know there is going to be a problem. I think my experience is unusual in this respect. Sometimes I would look around and think the people who have always surrounded me have been white people. And it never used to worry me. I just thought for my own peace of mind I should get involved with black people as well just so I can bridge the two for my own sake. In a way, I wish it was more of a problem because it would maybe open up a few more facets of life that I'm not really sure about. 
I've never lived in Brixton. I don't go there very often, but I'm not afraid to go there. I saw a play on television the other day about a black kid brought up by rich white folks, and he was regarded as a white nigger. To me, if a black person wants to say that to another black guy, then he's as ignorant as any National Front member. People are afraid to ask me about this because they think I will be offended. You have to do interviews and photo sessions. I'd never experienced anything like that before. You've got to stand there and have makeup on and all the rest of it. But it's all part of the job. If you're a mechanic, you get dirty as well, don't you? Bruce William Watson, born March 11th, 1961. I was born in Canada in 1961. My dad was a gold miner, then did contract work for a private firm that used to take on jobs abroad. He's a coal miner just now. I was only in Canada for about a year and a half. Then we came back and he was mining down in Wales, so I lived in a caravan there for a little while, and then we came back up to Scotland where he worked in the coal mines at Cumbria in Fife. I'm the eldest of the family and I've got a younger brother. He's a drummer. He was a window cleaner six months ago, but he's a drummer now. When I was young, I always wanted to be a footballer or a guitarist. I was good at football for a little while at school but I lost interest in it and decided on a guitar when I was about 15. Dunfermline is a bit like Coronation Street. Everybody knows each other. You can't do anything without somebody gossiping about it the next week. Everybody drinks in the same pubs. The town center is just the high street. Just outside Dunfermline, you've got six or seven coal pits and the dockyards, so everybody in Dunfermline is either a docker or a miner. Somebody from Jeff Rotel and Barbara Dixon come from Dunfermline. The guitarist with Nazareth. His mom and dad used to live just two doors away from my mom and dad, so when I was practicing the guitar, I used to see him draw up in his BMW, and I'd crank the guitar up even louder. After school, I worked at the dockyards for about four years. Started off as a yard boy, which is just like a junior postman. You go and deliver the mail, get Mars bars, and make tea. So I did that for a wee while, and then I got a trade as a joiner down there, which lasted nine months. And I hated it, because it was like factory conditions, and apprentices' wages were terrible. So I ran away to London, me and a couple of mates. Tried to get a band down here, squatting at Brixton and Camberwell. That lasted for about three weeks. It was my first taste of London, and I hated it. Jumping the tube, scrounging money for fags and food. So I went home and got a letter saying if you don't come back to work on Monday, you'll be sacked. So I went back to work on Monday, and I got a job as a laborer on the dockyard, which was working on the nuclear subs, cleaning out the ballast tanks. We had to wear special suits, but they did not protect you. They protect the aluminum on the reactor so you won't scratch it. You get these special little dosimeter badges like nurses wear at x-ray departments to tell you how much radiation you've got. So I don't know, I'm probably contaminated, but it's not contagious anyway. The story about my boots glowing green at a disco was just a wee thing I invented for the press. It's my claim to fame, really. I remember all the characters there. Great folk. I've been firewatching for a little while as well, which is you go down with a welder and sit and watch that all the oily rags don't go on fire. One guy I used to work with ended up playing the drums for the skids. One day Mike was working in the dockyard, and the next day he was on top of the pops. Then he came back to work on the docks. The United States of America. Bruce. The first time we went to America was before we'd even had a single released. 
we went out supporting the members just for three days. We did two nights at the Peppermint Lounge in New York and one night in Washington at the 930 Club, and then came right back. It was really crazy in New York. First time I've been on a jumbo jet. You arrive at JFK and the first thing that hits you is the heat. It's all hot and sticky. Then it's the old American accents. I couldn't believe I was there, getting a yellow taxi and driving over the bridges of Manhattan. It's just like you see in Kojak. Signs everywhere. We were staying at this really divey hotel, the Iroquois it was called. Big, massive cockroaches in the bathroom. We used to get Vaseline to put on the bed legs to stop the cockroaches climbing up. We used to wear these shorts like mountaineering trousers. We came on in these really dinky clothes, and I don't think anybody knew what to expect. It was mental. I remember going down this back street and this black guy comes across and he had this pack of cards and he said, pick a card, and I'm going, no chance. So we walked back up, looked down the alleyway, and we seen him going to meet his mates and they all had big sticks. Stuart and Mark went in this bar and there's this sort of Vietnam veteran talking about the war and that. The next thing he says, do you want to see my knife? And pulls his knife out of his coat and Stuart and Mark just ran out. We always get flung in at the deep end, but it's good. Later, we did an eight-week tour. I love touring, but the only thing that gets you down is traveling the distances between places. I've been involved in about three car crashes out there. Never been involved in a car crash before, but in America, I had three. In one place, I was going out for a Chinese meal. I was in the back of this taxi. Next minute, we're going past this crossroads, and a car just ran into the side of us. The tendons in my shoulder were all ripped. So I was on painkillers for about a week, and I was all strapped up. This was when I was actually playing. I wasn't able to get drunk for a week. Everything happens to me in the band. Either me or Mark. Mark. That's completely the wrong way around. I think I'm the quietest on the road, but I'm the unluckiest. It's Saad's law. It had to happen to me. We were in New Orleans. I went to help Bruce get rid of these two fans that were banging on his door. We were in adjacent rooms with an adjoining door. I could hear these fans banging, and Bruce was very drunk. He was shouting, piss off, go away. I was trying to get to sleep. It was the early hours of the morning, and we had a long drive the next day and needed our sleep. Then they carried on. Bruce came out, gave them their autograph, and they went. Then they came back, and I thought, this is going to cause some problems here. Bruce was not handling it very well. I'll go out and just tell him straight. Go downstairs. So as it happened, I went into Bruce's room, through my through door, told them to be on their way, but they actually pushed their way into the room. This is absurd. Either they're drunk, or they're high on getting an autograph, or just mucking around and being very giggly and childish. I said, look, you'll have to keep your voices down, otherwise we'll be in trouble. There's other guests sleeping. Just then, there's a knock at the door, and suddenly there's me, two girls, and Bruce in the one room, which looks ridiculous. This is completely the truth of it. I open the door on the chain in this guy with long, greasy hair and a black bomber jacket. No, a green bomber jacket. Says something like, Okay, you asshole, what's all the noise about? And I said, Look, it's under control. Don't worry about it. That's the whole reason I'm here. I'm sorting it out. Excuse me, there'll be no more noise. He said, Don't you give me that shit. I've heard it for the last five minutes, and he started abusing me. Swear, swear, swear all the time. I shouted to Bruce to call hotel security and call our minder, and suddenly he said, I am hotel security, you asshole. 
So I said, where's your ID? We're still talking through a gap in the door. He said, I'll come in and knock your head off. So I thought the best thing to do is get the door shut, because it's on a little chain. Get our minder up. So I slammed the door shut against him, holding it. He was trying to get in at me. He was completely furious. So I then went to my room to bring up my minder, and just then he kicked the door in, coming in with his guns, wanting to blast me away. The girls were screaming, and then they ran off. Meanwhile, the hotel had called the police, and he had pinned me to the ground with his gun. In a split second, it had turned into something horrific, through actually nothing. The police came, and I thought, thank God for that. They all suddenly said, arrest that man, and they all pointed at me. They arrested me, and I spent the night in a cell. Bruce was going, it's me you want, it's me you want, he had nothing to do with it, it's me. Okay, you can explain that in court tomorrow. The court, of course, were completely embarrassed about it, because the guy who was hotel security should have shown me his ID. He was also an off-duty police officer who was moonlighting. He didn't turn up in court and was very cagey about the whole thing. My bail to get out was $1,100, and the solicitor I got, funnily enough, his bill came to $1,100. I got an apology from the New Orleans police saying this guy was gun-happy and that it was very embarrassing, and this incident shouldn't get out, and if I was to sign a bit of paper saying none of this happened, then you can just go. So I signed it to get out of there. Japan Bruce I gets off the plane at the airport. Paul McCartney gets busted for dope there, so they think, rock and roll band, must be something dodgy here. So they went through all our bags and they went through my toilet bag. Toothpaste, shaver, Vic Sinex inhaler. They're illegal in Japan. So they took me away to the office to be fingerprinted and all the rest of it. So Dave Warnham, the tour manager, had to come and bail us out. They must have thought it was drugs or something. They opened it up. The Vic inhaler. It's just like a felt tube. That's all it is. Japan is amazing. Just couldn't they believe it. The jobs that folks have got. I went in this department store and there's this girl stands there for eight hours a day at the bottom of the handrail of the escalator with a cloth. Just cleans it. They're right sort of polite people as well. And if they've got a cold, they do they want to spread the germs to somebody else, so they wear a mask. So you've got all these rockabillies dancing in the street with squint eyes and a big quiff, trying to look like rebels, and one of them's got a cold, so he's got this bloody mask on. It was like being in the Bay City Rollers. It was ridiculous. The gigs are great. You start about 5 o'clock in the afternoon and finish at 7, so you have the rest of the night off. But it takes about three hours to get to your hotel because in the lobby, you're just mobbed with all these young girls with cameras wanting your autograph. You go to your room and a Japanese girl jumps out of the wardrobe. Me and Mark went to one of these bathhouses. Ridiculous that was. It's all businessmen who go there after work to relax. So we went in and this woman says, I'll take all your clothes off. She made me sit in this big sort of bath with all these like torture devices on the wall. She made me sit on this sort of potty and she starts washing you and giving you a massage and all the rest of it. I kept thinking there must be a video camera in the room. I kept on laughing because it was so funny sitting in this room completely naked and this woman's completely naked and she's flinging soap at me, giving me this massage. Pressure. Mark. 
As for pressure, everything gets done for you. The only pressure I have is fighting to do things yourself. Short of getting your bum wiped for you, you're totally cradled, which sometimes I don't like. Tony. Let me explain this point. When the group started becoming successful, and you started all the pressure of touring different countries, having to make second albums, that's when things start being taken away from you. You get involved in this tornado of business, pressures of work, and that's the hardest part. Trying to keep in touch with it, trying to keep your feet firmly on the ground. I think we realize it's kind of impossible. Success does cause an immense amount of problems. I don't think you can anticipate it or visualize it until you're actually involved in it. You have to learn with it. Bruce. When we went to America, all the Americans were saying, did you feel under pressure because it was a second album syndrome type of thing? And we'd never thought about that until the Americans said that. Stuart. What does get to you is the hours spent travelling and then, during the course of a long American tour, doing two or three interviews a day where you'll have to reiterate the same things, that really becomes a danger. Because of that you start getting wound up, start getting bevied up after a gig, end up in the morning feeling like hell. So you take it out of yourself. You've got to watch what you're doing, hopefully you try and keep that in hand. You've got to watch what you're about the whole time. It's more of a mental strain than a physical strain because it's a very closeted environment. You know exactly what you're there for, exactly what you're going to be doing. Your whole day is mapped out for you, and there's very little chance of anything happening on the off chance. There isn't that surprise thing that may happen to you in the course of a day. Then it does become a bit of a drudge. But when you're on stage, it's fine. Do you rebel against that occasionally? Aye, I have been known to. Just turn around and say, look, I'm not doing any more interviews for a week. You have to retain a sense of your own individuality, not get caught up in the mesh of the whole thing. A Manager's Tale Ian Grant I was first aware of Stuart when the skids supported the Stranglers in the autumn of 1979, and I became more aware of him when I quit managing the Stranglers and was looking for another band. My partner Alan Edwards and I went to meet him and Richard Jobson, and we ended up managing them from September 1980 until February 1981. It was an interesting time to take them over because they'd had a fair amount of success as a melodic punk group, but then the singles didn't happen. Richard Jobson was getting into poetry, and his ego was inflated because he was the star of the show. Stewart was the shadow, or lived behind his shadow. They split up maybe three times, and I patched them up each time, until one day when Stewart wouldn't come out of his room at King's Cross. I went round to see him, and he was in a real state. His grandmother had died, and he said, I've finished with the skids. That produced the song Inwards on the first album. When you ask me what managing a band like Big Country is about, that's one example, maybe an extreme side where there's the most pressure for me. When I'm not quite sure of anything, my role for instance, I'm not in command, because I'm normally in the driving seat and I'm holding the wheel completely between my knees to be able to take each bend and corner. He rang me up weeks later and said, Will you continue to manage me? I said, you know what you've got to do for me to manage you? Produce some songs. About three or four months later, he came down to my house. He arrived at about 8.30 in the morning and we sat out in the garden. He played the eight demos on the Walkman, of which five were to end up on the first album. I listened to them and reflected on it. Stuart was still signed to Virgin and to Virgin Publishing, 
So I went to see Simon Draper and Richard Branson, and it was well obvious that it was Richard Jobson they were really interested in. Then began the trek round A&R men at record companies, the financing and making of demos, the dealing. Enter Chris Briggs, A&R chief at Polygram at the time. I took Briggs up to Dunfermline and we saw the band play in this church hall, which is now demolished. It was blatantly obvious that there was something there, but rhythmically the drummer and the bass player were just not up to it. Briggs told me so on the plane coming back. The next thing that happened was the Alice Cooper tour. It was crazy, but it is always inviting to a group or manager when you're offered a big tour with no buy-on and playing to 5,000 people. It's one of the obvious routes to start to break a band. They started the tour at the Brighton Center. We'd already got to know that Alice Cooper was being very difficult to deal with. He wouldn't do interviews and he didn't start his sound check until 10 past 7 when the doors opened at 7.30. Big Country had to start setting up their gear with the audience already coming in. The set was a disaster. They went off to Birmingham Odeon the next night. I didn't go to that, but they were kicked off the tour. That was real confrontation time with Stuart. I rang him up, but he wasn't too down about it. His son Callum had just been born on the eve of the tour, and he just wanted to get back to Scotland to see his new son. I told Stuart that he had to tour his band around Scotland at pubs and clubs for four or five months until the group was really tight. Coincidentally, Tony Butler had been ringing me up periodically, quite out of the blue, to ask how Stuart was doing since he quit the skids. I thought, rhythm section. I'd seen them play with Pete Townsend at Brockwell Park when I was managing the members, and I really enjoyed that gig because I've always been a Townsend fanatic. I went to Chris Briggs and said, look, I found a rhythm section. Put them in the studio. They met, did four demos, and I got a deal ten days later. Basically, there's two types of pressure. There's ones that are enjoyable only because, if you've succeeded, you can reflect on them in a nice way. On the other hand, there's pressure that never stops. I suppose the pressure never happened with this group until I came back from Barbados, thinking everything was going to go right in America with Steeltown, even though in my heart of hearts I knew it wasn't. It was just a brave front, but I never give up. If Stewart wanted to find fault with me, it's that. I will not give up. With Steeltown not succeeding in the way it ought to have done for a number of reasons, we're going to take action with Polygram, but that still didn't mean I gave up. I could still get Big Country on a Hall and Oats tour, playing to 30,000 people, but that would mean me ignoring the fact that Stewart's going through a tricky situation. He's got a pregnant wife, and he doesn't really like the rock and roll trip, the roller coaster he's been on for so long. He wants to get off that roller coaster, and there's me trying to keep him on it. This kind of pressure is the worst I've been under since I quit managing the Stranglers in 1980, because it's sort of personal in a way. There was another time when something happened that put Stewart under such pressure, though what I'm talking about will remain vague. It was because of his family beliefs because of the way he was brought up, not really seeing his father much until he was 20, and being away from his son, Callum, and the thing about him being anti-rock star. This pressure on him gradually built up, and the bigger it became, the more boundaries I've helped knock down for him. Like going to America, playing on the Grammys show, flying on the Concorde, having a top 20 album and single, and a gold disc in America, all these things. I could see what Stewart was going through, He'd been on a spiral through wherever, London, Dallas, San Francisco, Tokyo, Manchester, and he wanted to get off, but he couldn't. So because he didn't get off, it became worse and worse until recently he did get off, and his way of dealing with it was to ring me and say, 
Thanks, you're the best person I've ever worked with. What you've done for me, I can never thank you enough for. So I said, Stuart, what are you trying to say? He said, I've finished. I'm out of the business. Some people react in such a way. I've seen it before, and I knew I had to back off. He agreed I should come to Scotland and have a chat. We didn't even discuss business. We just sat in the pub. I left him to himself, and I've seen him recently, and he's fine. He just needed that break. Some personalities, some characters, some people, some musicians, some artists can stand any type of pressure and go on ad infinitum. Some are limited by whatever they want to limit themselves by, like personal situations. I think I got the best out of him without wanting to sound manipulative, and he may have got the best out of me. Father and Son Stuart Adamson They're pulling everything apart, and there's no replacement. Okay, let the heavy industries die out because they're not cost-productive. But what the hell are people meant to go and work at? Where are they meant to earn a living wage? That breaks down the community spirit. It was something that I suppose was very special to me growing up in a small village environment. Everybody was in the same boat. Everybody was from working families. No quarter asked or given, but everybody would dig in and help each other. In this area, the mining is being taken away, and the linen industry is dying out, and shipbuilding you can almost forget. There's a few rigs being built, but that's about it. To be out of work for a long time destroys your own self-respect. I know what it's like because I've been on the dole for a long time myself. You draw further into yourself and it does bring that sense of desperation to it. That desperation breaks down a community, makes people fend only for themselves. The age of family and community is being broken down and it is something to look upon with regret. I think so anyway. There are apocalyptic images in the songs. It's something that's with me constantly and it's something that's brought home quite hard living in this area. We have the dockyard heavy servicing for submarines and the Maritime Command for Scotland, so we're a prime target here, make no bones about it. If anything does happen, it's going to be bye-bye this area. What do you feel about the Falklands? At the time, Bruce and I were traveling back and forwards to London on the train, and always on the train between London and Edinburgh, there's a lot of servicemen. We sat and talked with them many's the time. I just wonder whether there's any people I may have shared a few hours with on the train who got blown away for something that was, to me anyway, completely senseless. Totally senseless war. All it served a purpose for was to get the old flags out. Let's rally behind the boys. I looked at it from the other side of you, being one of the boys' parents who didn't come back and ended up lying in bits in some bloody, cold, damp, filthy field on a wee stupid island in the middle of the Atlantic that nobody has even heard of before that. The songs are just about the sort of hopes and fears that every sort of parent is bound to go through with their children. Just the sheer trauma of growing up. And all that going to waste for someone else's idea of patriotism. Do you see yourself as working class? I see myself as a working person. To say I see myself as working class is a very dangerous statement to make. That's putting divisions between people which I think shouldn't be there. Comments on Big Country. Robbie Coltrane, comedian. When I first heard Big Country, I thought the Clash had hijacked a Peabrock player. But they subsequently proved able to combine gut reaction, politics, that big three guitar noise, and the more heart-rending melodies that make every Scotsman in London eat a bus stop out of homesickness on the way home from the pub. 
I desperately want to write and direct a video for them. Attila the Stockbroker, Poet-Performer. 95% of modern music is unadulterated, undiluted wombat vomit. Big country are a lot better than that. They emerged with a sound that stood out against the disco synth rubbish being played by almost everybody else. I especially like the guitar sound, though it can get a bit samey on occasions. Roger Daltrey. I think they're terrible. I'd like to see them break up so I could have them all in my band. Bill Nelson, musician. Stuart has arrived at the guitar style that not only announces its own identity, but which loudly proclaims Scotland. Kenny Dalgleish, Scottish footballer. The band is great. They must be. They're Scottish. Charlie Nicholas, Scottish footballer. The Crossing was a great album, but I haven't really been impressed with anything they have subsequently done. Mickey Most, record producer. I'm glad Mark has agreed to take the drum lessons at last. Elton John. I've always liked Big Country because they have one of the best rhythm sections around and their songs are full of life and drive with great vocals. Also, I happen to like them very much indeed. Janice Long, BBC Radio 1 DJ. Big Country. The first thing that springs to mind is inspiring. Whenever I play a gig, I play one of their hit singles and it really gets people going. Bonds them together. It's a sort of unification. They're great because you know they haven't spent two hours in the dressing room deciding which check shirt to put on or whether to use blusher. I mean, they're not particularly heartthrobs, are they? Though that Stuart Adamson's a bit of all right. They're definitely not contrived. Lemmy, lead singer of Motorhead. When Brian Robertson was with Motorhead and we were touring, all he ever played on the bus was The Crossing. I thought he was showing typically nationalistic zeal. Anyway, I came to like it, but subsequently they came to sound a bit samey. Steve Sutherland, writer for Melody Maker. Stuart desperately wanted a democracy and didn't want to be the spokesman. Stuart was naturally singled out by the press because he was more experienced and well-known from his days in the skids. Bruce was younger and idolised Stuart. What happened on the last tour was inevitable. Adamson cannot hope to achieve the degree of communication he once had with his audience on large-scale gigs like Wembley. Because the show has become routine by virtue of their success, so the reaction from the audience becomes Pavlovian, and the entire band-crowd relationship a cliché. The gestures and spirit they once conveyed has been devalued. Musically, the second album was the first perfected, and very much a democratic effort. Bob Geldof asked why Big Country were not invited to play at Live Aid. I thought they'd broken up. I really did, or I probably would have called them. The decision as to who should appear was nothing to do with my own personal taste. It was current popularity and availability, more to do with how many people would watch them. I think Big Country are a great group. I just thought at the time they'd broken up. An interview with Richard Jobson. What was your first impression on meeting Stuart Adamson? He was quiet, shy and disarming. What were Stuart's advantages and drawbacks as far as the skids were concerned? He discovered a sound which became the trademark of the band. Eventually that trademark sadly became Horses for Courses. How did you feel when Virgin kept you and released Stuart? We could not deal with his management, even though Virgin was aware of his talent. What do you feel about Big Country's subsequent success? They captured emotions most people overlook or take for granted and created a vehicle for release in many people. I count myself as one of those people.
Gary Bushell, writer for Sounds. When I first reviewed Big Country back in July 1982, they stood out amongst the rising tide of cynicism and synthesizers like a soup kitchen on a hunger march. Since then, they've crafted some wonderfully rebel-rousing tunes of glory and helped rescue the guitar from pop oblivion at the same time. Their only real danger is the tendency to be too po-faced, too one-dimensional. Even recessions ain't all depressions. Jazz Coleman of Killing Joke. Big Country, indisputable proof of the formula principle applied to music consumerism. Torturous mediocrity executed with the necessary precision. No inspiration, average lyrical content combined with archetypal motions within a relatively well-performed act. Consistently tedious, appeals to the mediocre in everybody, resulting in international mediocrity. That is undulated contemporary marketing. I cannot deny that the music remains an accurate creative summary of the present day existence. This is their appeal, but given half the chance, I'd have them electrocuted. John Giddings, Big Country's agent. I decided Big Country should play the Reading Festival. Ian Grant said no. Stuart refused point blank to do it. Nevertheless, I confirmed them on the show without telling them and announced it to the music papers. When approached by the papers, Stuart made a flat denial. The band would not be playing because he and his family were going abroad on holiday. I was determined. I was so convinced I was right that I persuaded Ian Grant and Chris Briggs, their A&R man at Phonogram. I even offered to pay for Stuart and Sandra to fly back from their holiday to do the show and back again. This must have been enough to illustrate to Stuart how certain I was that to do Reading was a good idea. It was. That day put Big Country on a different level in the UK. A happy ending, but they could have sacked me. Dan McCafferty, lead singer of Nazareth. Coming from the same town, I was first aware of Stuart around the time of Into the Valley, the Skids album. It was a really great LP. When Big Country got together, we saw them at Crystal Palace, and I thought, hello, a good rock and roll guitar band. I'm really glad Stuart stopped wearing white trousers. And why does Bruce always have a worried expression when he's playing guitar? He needn't worry. He always managed to hit the right notes. An interview with Pete Townsend. Why did you initially choose Mark and Tony to work with you on your albums? I started using Tony only on Empty Glass. I wanted a straightforward player and Tony fitted the bill. I felt he wasn't entirely happy working with me and I knew that he was searching for an identity of his own which he has certainly found in his work with Big Country. Mark was drafted in to play on Little Is Enough on the same album. It was a revelation to me how well Mark was then playing. I had seen them both with my brother Simon and On The Air and they had been good, not great. In their work together, they developed a mutual confidence and ambition that seemed to drive them to terrific work. They were always very loyal to Simon and hoped that by doing sessions, they could earn money while waiting for him to achieve success. But Simon knew he must encourage them to move on, and I hope my own work with them helped them along. How much difference was there working with Mark on the White City project compared to Empty Glass, by way of attitude or ability? Mark has grown emotionally and continues to grow. He has great dignity beneath his light-hearted exterior and always listens before he plays. He responds to music like a stimulus. On White City, he has provided an almost impressionistic response to my scores. But he has evolved. 
The great thing about him now is that he's capable of contributing to a song when it is unborn. Maybe just a few chords. This is a move on for him, someone who has usually needed something established to bounce off. You warned Big Country of the potential problems they may face with the guitar sound they had. The second album, compared to the first, was a failure. What is your opinion of the second album? I don't think the failure of Steeltown had anything to do with the guitar sound. Stuart is clear-minded, but probably quite torn between success and home life. His writing needs to grow at the rate he himself grows. I loved Big Country Sound, like everyone else, but now I feel that I want to hear more about Stuart himself, whichever sound he chooses to use. His film music, along with substantial contributions from the rest of the band, proved him to be as fresh as ever musically. He has to be prepared to let go. The guitar sound I have used and many of the chords haven't changed very much over the years after all, so perhaps my first warning was ill-advised. Having spent a couple of years living without it, I miss Stuart's sound like mad. I am still afraid that Stuart himself is trapping himself in, quite deliberately. My main fear hearing the first album was that Mark would not find enough scope for musical growth within Big Country. What is interesting is that Tony is perfectly fulfilled in the band. He has a new sound which works well with Bruce and Stuart and seems to thrive on stardom. Mark, however, needs to be stretched. It would be a pity if he had to look constantly outside Big Country for a challenge. You had reservations about signing Big Country in their original form. What specifically convinced you to sign them? As someone who has watched from the outside, I am aware of terrific pressure on Stuart. He has had a crisis of confidence and it is undeserved. Big Country, anachronistic and tribal, though their music might sound sometimes uplift hearts when they play. Their performing idealism is perfectly correct and utterly wholesome in any opinion. Big Country, once darlings of the critics, now have to rise above criticism, even mine. An interview with Chris Briggs, the phonogram A&R boss who signed Big Country. Stuart looked like Gulliver in Lilliput in that first lineup. Bruce was a good prospect, and between the two of them, the root of an idea could be identified. There were some good songs, and the way that Stuart and Bruce played guitar together. The music itself lacked the rhythmic support it deserved until Mark and Tony arrived. Ian Grant and myself had kicked ideas around drunkenly and unsuccessfully. Tony phoned Stuart after hearing a rumour that he was starting a band, and in some versions of this story, I claim the credit for starting the chain that led to this phone call. Listening to the four of them play together in a demo studio, a virtually unrehearsed thrash convinced me to sign. What, in your opinion, were the prime reasons for Big Country's rise to success here and in the USA? Talent, hard work and luck. What was the most enjoyable and rewarding period of your involvement with Big Country? Seeing it through from inception to acceptance. Watching thousands back your initial intuition is reassuring and satisfying. And if I had to pick out one period, it would be the making of The Crossing. The real satisfaction is for your own vision to match that of the band and for it then to succeed artistically and commercially. Actually, the drunken bastards made my life a misery. Steel Town did not sell as well as The Crossing. What were the contributing factors to this situation? The songs are more developed than on the first album, but they are denser and abstract, rather than direct and personal. 
the pressure of the circumstances in which it was made, the end of a first grueling year of success, personal lives readjusting to everything that had happened in the previous two years, no time to demo and recording in a foreign country, and drinking too much. One or a number of these and other factors broke the elastic band for a couple of weeks in the middle of Steeltown. Commercially it was missing a bulletproof single, and that is the only respect in which we failed. The non-professional side of me actually prefers Steeltown to the crossing. It has more depth. It was less successful because it asks for more from the listener. The band's management took on Phonogram's US counterpart, Polygram. What are your opinions on this action? Large American companies treat bands like professional light entertainers, where they see themselves as artists. All the conflict is rooted in this fact. If you were still involved, what would you advise the band against? Avoid repeating the past. Always look ahead. Work with people who push you to the absolute limit of your ability. If you stop enjoying it, take a break. Otherwise, you'll poison the place where all the good stuff comes from. Know how good you are. The band must continue to grow to satisfy the developing needs of the four individual talents. You cannot keep them together unless everyone is receiving job satisfaction. An interview with Simon Draper, Virgin Records number two executive. What were Stuart Adamson's gifts that contributed to the Skid's early success? Stuart's guitar style was unique and became the musical characteristic of their sound. He composed all the music on their first hits. His contribution to the band was in fact massive. How would you describe the relationship between Richard Jobson and Stuart during the Skid's career? As time went by, the difference in attitude between Richard and Stuart became more and more apparent. Richard was young, impressionable and ambitious, and he spent more time out socialising in London. Stuart had a steady girlfriend in Scotland and spent more time there. There were many occasions when Stuart and Richard fell out. Their attitudes to the record business, to other artists and to music were very different. The first incident occurred when they were recording the first album with Dave Batchelor. The album was nearly finished when Stuart without much explanation took off and disappeared he'd gone back to scotland at the time everyone thought he left the band and a session guitarist was brought in it took a great deal of persuasion to get him back there were other occasions when stuart let his dissatisfaction with the record business get him down and he eventually walked out what made you decide to keep jobson signed to virgin and release adamson obviously we were going to continue with the skids since we'd invested a great deal of money in them I elected to carry on with Stuart as a solo artist after I heard some demos of his band. I put them in the studio with the producer of Stuart's choice, John Leckie. I didn't feel the tracks were strong or sufficiently encouraging to carry on and Stuart left the label. Obviously with hindsight we made a mistake in letting Stuart go, but the new environment he found himself in after changing companies was obviously a challenge and extremely beneficial to his career. Were you surprised at Big Country's sudden out-of-the-box success, particularly in the USA? Big Country's success was not a sudden, out-of-the-box phenomenon. They were successful with their first LP, but after Stuart left the skids, more than a year went by before he found real confidence as a singer and arrived at a band lineup that really worked. I wasn't surprised that the first album was popular. Stuart had always written good songs and had always had great originality as a guitarist. What was new entirely was his vocals, sympathetic band members and producer Steve Lillywhite. Boy George. Big Country. Well, I used to like Big Country. I've met the drummer and he seemed a really nice bloke. But I've since heard they've been slagging me off. 
I won't slag them off, though. Peter Powell, BBC Radio 1 DJ. When I first heard Big Country, it was on a demo tape, which was marked Stuart Adamson's new band. I remember it being very exciting because it was the first time I'd heard guitar for about two years. I went to see them doing a session for my programme and I saw the excitement and enthusiasm. Midjour, musician. The thing that impressed me most about Stuart was the fact that he wasn't embarrassed about asking for an autograph for his son. It's refreshing to meet someone like that. Alice Cooper is purported to have thrown Big Country off a tour in the early days of their career. His comment... Yeah, someone mentioned this to me once before. You know, I met them at the Grammy Awards. I was so impressed. Got along with them great. You know, when you're putting a show together, the type we have, you don't get to see the support band much. Maybe not at all. It takes all day just to prepare for the show. I toured with Blondie and Any Money and never saw them play. Anyway, when I heard In a Big Country, I thought it was just an enormous, big sound. Unbelievable. When I met them at the Grammy Awards, great guys. It was really funny. We were talking probably for about 20 minutes. I don't know. They seemed really nice. But I just didn't understand a thing of what they were talking about. Aren't they Scottish or Irish or something? They just kept rapping to me and I kept on saying, Yeah, great song. Really great. Just kept grinning at them. Later, when someone told me they had been on the tour, I was really surprised. Don't know why they didn't finish the tour. It was not an ego thing, not down to me. It was just business, I guess. Bono, you too. Put a pen in my hand and I'm a dangerous man. Either I'd write a thesis about Stuart Adamson or end up writing something different altogether. In some ways, both you two and Big Country are outsiders. We come from the provinces and outside of the metropolises of London and New York City. Unlike other groups that migrated to London, then took on the identity of the city, losing their own. These two groups remain separate. We're probably equidistant from London and the centre of the music business. The further away you get from the business, the closer you get to the music. We're also similar in that a new generation of guitar players, not guitar heroes, has emerged. Stuart Adamson is an anti-hero. He doesn't use his guitar like a phallus, pushing it into the front rows of the people. That is something that he and The Edge have in common though Stuart plays with three strings and The Edge plays with two. Also, Big Country are stubborn and pig-headed like us. I dare say if Big Country weren't Scottish, they'd have to be Irish. Also, Glasgow Celtic has all our best football players. Steve Lillywhite, producer of The Crossing and Steel Town. When I first heard the demo of In A Big Country, I thought it was the best demo I'd ever heard, and it actually made me cry. It was wonderful. Of course, it was a problem track to record. We mixed it about five times. I wanted to get the very best out of it. When the band were in Sweden doing Steel Town, they occasionally got a bit bored, especially Bruce. One day we were sitting around the mixing desk and Bruce had disappeared. Suddenly he was standing in the doorway and wearing a dress. We all cracked up laughing and literally didn't stop for about half an hour. Robin Miller, producer to work on some, if not all, of Big Country's third LP. What first struck me on meeting Big Country was their genuine enthusiasm for their songs. Quite often in pre-production rehearsals, bands will say they don't like their own material and won't want to play it to me. Not so Big Country. Upon request, they launch into their own material quite eagerly. With no disrespect to other producers, I think I can say that the passion that has gone into their songs has not been brought out. I am a great one for people who believe in what they sing and the ideas behind their songs. 
What also impressed me about them is that they get on well as people. They're polite and have respect for one another. Also, they love playing live. In their first live American TV appearance, let's welcome Big Country! Big Country with co-manager Alan Edwards. I remember seeing Big Country support on the Alice Cooper tour, but although I saw the band in the office from time to time, I was not in close contact with them as I was absorbed in day-to-day survival problems. Partially to bring an income and partially because of all the obvious reasons, I went on a European tour with the Rolling Stones as their publicist. The workload was extraordinary and thoughts of Big Country got pushed to the back of my mind. I was in Edinburgh for a concert by Teddy Pendergrass, who I represented in my capacity as PR. Typically, it was a bleak day, Edinburgh grayer and chillier than usual. Ian had asked me to look up Stuart. We arranged to meet in a pub at 6 p.m. Stuart had been living the life of a recluse and, although a little nervous, seemed pleased to see someone from the big smoke. We chatted generally about the skids and such things, and Stuart told me about the new material he was working on. Neither of us were plush, and so a couple of hats of Guinness were all we could stretch to. After a while, we parted, Adamson, Ferdinand, Fernland, and me to the Edinburgh Playhouse, little knowing that this would be the scene for Stewart to wind up the first phase of his future group, Big Country's career. Later, Big Country played some Christmas concerts at Hammersmith Palais, and after the sterility of some of the Stone Stadium shows, it was a breath of fresh air, so spontaneous and enthusiastic. I brought John Blake of the Sun down to the show, and he went away raving about jock rock, which made Stewart cringe. After the Stones, I was shattered. I went down to the West Country in Wales with Ian to see the band, and although not yet fully fledged, they were destroying audiences. Swansea never recovered, as far as I know. My foreign travels continued. David Bowie hired me to do Europe for him, which was fine financially, but unfortunately distracted me from Tony, Mark, Bruce, and Stewart during this formative period. I often went to shows such as Nottingham Rock City and was never anything less than excited. The Bowie trip took me all around Europe and then on to Australia. The experience was invaluable, giving me an encyclopedic knowledge of all the media from Stuttgart to Sydney. The Crossing album was firmly wedged in my brain at this juncture, and I often found it hard to contain my enthusiasm for the project we left at home. Left at home maybe, but not forgotten, and I undertook a simultaneous tour of Big Country licensees. Everywhere I went, I left Big Country albums, pictures, and interest. It got to be like a double act, with Bowie opening the door and Big Country walking in to the pages of newspapers and radio stations. Nowhere more so than Australia, where I arranged a string of radio and press interviews, checked stores across the country, and wound up the record company. This may have been the turning point in breaking Big Country's career down under. I made no real secret of my Big Country work, and I blew out Bowie's Japanese tour to be in America working with Big Country. 
I didn't make this decision until the last minute. The first David actually knew about it was when I failed to materialize in the seat next to him for the London to Tokyo JAL flight. Graciously, he forgave me. Lots of people on the tour were into the group, especially promoter Wayne Forte, who was keen to represent the group. David himself was quite enthusiastic, and I remember him singing along with In a Big Country as I played it over the sound system of a boat in Sydney Harbor. The feeling was reciprocated, and on the last day proper of the tour in Auckland, New Zealand, in front of 80,000 people, members of Big Country listened to the show over the stage phone. I'd been speaking to Ian and Tony Butler in Chicago, and I kept the phone off so they could have their own private broadcast. After leaving the Bowie tour in New Zealand and flying back to America by way of Hawaii, I arrived in New York where the weather was cold, icy cold with some snow. My first recollection of arriving back was meeting Big Country in the lobby of the Berkshire Place Hotel, which is a modern hotel, early in the morning to go to the rehearsals of Saturday Night Live. Stuart was sitting in the lobby, very quiet, didn't talk to anybody for about 45 minutes. I went over the road with Tony and Bruce for some coffee. We then went around to the Saturday Night Live studios, which was pretty good fun. Everything went smoothly. Later in the day, we went back to do the show, and one of the highlights was meeting Larry Holmes, then the world champion boxer, who came along and met Stuart and all the group, and everyone took pictures with him. Stuart was chuffed to get his autograph. At the time, he was collecting autographs, and he was able to add that one to the ones he had already collected that day, ironically one of which was Muhammad Ali. The Big Country Show in New York was at the Roseland Ballroom, an old ballroom along the lines of Hammersmith Palais, sort of echoing type of place. We were greeted by a very enthusiastic crowd of 4,000 people jam-packed to the rafters, and afterwards there were crowds of people waiting around to see Stuart backstage. We joined up with the group a few days later in Montreal and Canada, which was cold and snowy by this time. Quite a lot of snow on the ground, quite a pretty city. The show again, a big club, about 2,000 people, enthusiastic. Michael Terriant, who was the Polygram representative and a great champion of the band, was there to make sure everything went smoothly. Some fun was had by everyone after the show, particularly by Bruce, but I won't go into that. After one more show, Ian and myself took a supposedly well-earned vacation in Jamaica for three or four days, where we caught up with the sun before getting back to London for Christmas Eve. My next recollection on Tour of Big Country in America was of Los Angeles. The group was staying at the Sunset Marquee prior to doing two sellout shows at the Palladium, which holds about 4,000 people. The shows are very good indeed, some of Big Country's best, with again an enthusiastic crowd, good support I believe, and a variety of acts and quite a few local celebrities around to see the show. After the show we went to a party in Ian's apartment at the Sunset Marquee, which proved to be very boisterous. Members of Slade were present, they were also staying at the hotel, with a pair of extraordinary large young girls. One of them turned out to be Bob Dylan's daughter. Quite an amusing time was had by all. And meanwhile back to LA, the next gig was in San Diego. We had a few problems getting there. We set off in a coach, and about 40 miles from the actual town of San Diego, the coach broke down, a luxury bus. We had to wait there until a minibus came to take us down to San Diego. Nice afternoon. Bruce and myself and Ian individually went over the border into Mexico before the show for one of the worst Mexican meals in our lives. Ian's son James had his camera stolen. After the show, we had a stack of bottles of a Mexican type of liquor that has a worm in the bottom of it. The worm was supposed to give you a psychedelic effect, and there were dares in the dressing room to drink these things and eat the worm. Ian managed to consume one of these, and I'm sure Stuart and Sandra did. It certainly enlivened the coach trip back to L.A. There were people actually complaining about their visual abilities after this. Some of us came back to England. Stuart was not in the best of spirits when I left. Next stop was a major English tour for Big Country, playing very big venues opening at Brighton Conference Center. Next night in Birmingham NEC, jam-packed, 40,000 tickets sold out in a week before the show. The cult opened up solidly. From there, it's on to Wembley, where a good evening was had by all. 
The tour ends up in Scotland on Christmas Eve with a show at the Edinburgh Playhouse. Back up to Scotland and in time for the New Year's show, which is filmed live by BBC Two and goes out as part of welcoming the New Year in. The show goes fine. Stuart is not at its most communicative, obviously. Burnt out and just about had enough of it for the time being. Ian Grant joins Alan Edwards to bring the big country story up to date. Alan. The Playhouse gig was really the end of a long, almost three-year period of extensive touring for Big Country. Stuart was sick and tired. Pressure was being put on Stuart to continue work on a film soundtrack he was writing. In hindsight, we should have realized how totally exhausted he was. Ian. New Year's Eve was relatively successful, though it was a worrying, often tear-jerking time. Alan and I both went away on holiday. While we were away, the film producer got directly in touch with Stuart and cajoled him into the studio. There developed a tug-of-war between the film people and the band. It was particularly stressful for me in an emotional sense, as Stuart would have nothing to do with me, wouldn't even speak to me on the phone. He went into it wrong. The extra pressure was the last thing Stuart needed, and the soundtrack for the film Restless Natives took two tiresome months to record. Meanwhile, I came back from holiday recharged. I arranged a meeting with Stuart to discuss a U.S. tour with Hall & Oates that Alan and I had arranged. He didn't turn up. Instead, he rang and said he was quitting. Finished. Crisis. In all honesty, I was feeling freaked out, too. I knew I had to keep the others happy. Mark did loads of sessions, but Bruce just got depressed. Nothing happened with the group for six months. We canceled the Hall & Oates tour at about seven days' notice, which did not endear us to their management. We also took the initiative to attack Polygram because we thought they'd done a bad job on Steeltown. We felt they hadn't promoted the album efficiently and hadn't been behind the band. We wanted out. We wanted off the label. Other companies, MCA and Geffen Spring to mind, were interested, but Polygram weren't having it. We were faced with the alternative of spending the next 12 months in the courts, which would have just destroyed the band, or going for the most money. In the end, we got a lucrative deal which guaranteed to pay on sales of a quarter million in the USA, even if the album sold no copies whatsoever. The deal we worked out was worth a total of three quarter million. During this time, the record company appointed a new MD, David Simone, and a new A&R man, David Bates, was also brought in. This helped improve the band's relationship with Phonogram. Prior to this, there had been another turning point. The lineup for Live Aid was announced, and Stewart was very keen to appear. Ian rang Harvey Goldsmith, the promoter, and there was talk of Stewart performing with U2 for the whole of their set. These plans didn't materialize, and instead Big Country were invited to join in the finale. It was naturally a very inspiring experience, and we were all glad to be there. Live Aid actually brought the group back together again. The band are currently in rehearsal, and have demoed 12 tracks for a new album. They'll be produced by Robin Miller. In December, the band plays gigs at Madison Square Garden as guests of Roger Daltrey, and Mark and Tony will be playing in Daltrey's band. The new Big Country album will be released in the spring of 1986, and the group will then tour the world. Stuart Adamson. People say music can't change the world. I think it can. Not on a huge scale of causing revolutions, but it can bring people together. Let people understand each other and see things. This is the end of Big Country, A Certain Chemistry. Original text produced by John May and edited by Chris Charlesworth. Read for you by... Peter Ahmad Alan Ambari Andy Bailey, Don Barr Arlen Bartels Warren Craggett Corey Crowley Bill Darner Mark Dunwillows Tim Eldred Alan Ferrier Kenny Henderson Phil Kennedy Will Layden John Lewis Doug Mitchell Linda Rossborough 
Jamin Weeds. John Wilbur. Thank you for listening. Stay alive. Our slogan is, if it's no Scottish, it's crap! This is Swain, on behalf of Tom and myself, saying thanks to everybody involved for contributing to this great, great project. We'll be back soon with a regular podcast episode. Until then, stay alive!